So the big question is this, how are real estate investors who don't have a ton of free time, don't have access to off-market deals, and didn't start life on third base, how do we grow a real estate business conservatively to support our families, finally leave the corporate rat race and build a legacy? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Ed Matthews, and this is Real Estate Underground. Hey, everybody. Ed Matthews here with Real Estate Underground. I am joined by my partner in crime, Mr. Richard Brown. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Ed. Happy to be here and excited about today's guest. Bard Kliegerman is the CEO and general partner of Connecticut Realty Trust. Bard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we've been looking forward to this for quite some time. So nice to finally put a uh, face with a name. Appreciate it. Yeah. So Bard, let's jump right in. For those of us in the audience who don't know your company or who you are, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for a living? Sure. I started Connecticut Realty Trust in 2009 with my dad, actually. Long history in real estate. My dad goes back to the 1970s when he was a broker in the city. He got into ownership in the city in the 1990s and focused on mostly low to moderate income housing in the Bronx, northern Manhattan, Brooklyn, a lot of areas that people were not necessarily investing in in those times. Yeah. Fast forward to 2009, we had a market downturn that I think a lot of us remember. I was recently out of college. I graduated college in 2007 and took a job with Marcus and Millichap in the city, literally right when the world kind of went dark. I'm talking to my dad around that time, got some advice, trying to decide what to do, where to go, how do we take advantage of what's happening with the world right now? And although he was very well established at that time, was like many of us or many people that were currently in the workforce at that time, not freaked out, but just uh, the world was very much in a different place than it was just a few years earlier. Made a few connections, uh, had a bunch of conversations, and eventually we decided that we should pursue assets in Connecticut, where we felt like it was a little bit overlooked compared to the rest of the country, especially the Northeast being right next to the city, but so you have that geographic connection, but for whatever reason, Connecticut had never really received the attention that maybe it should have. So we decided we're going to pursue Connecticut through a few introductions. We ended up zeroing in on Waterbury, Connecticut, which for those that don't know, Waterbury was, is, continues to be an incredibly challenged city or I shouldn't say was because back in the 1960s, 70s, it was known as the Brass City, still is, but it was the brass capital of the world and that it was actually very opulent at that time. Fast forward to uh, today and back when we invested, it was uh, unfortunately the exact opposite. A lot of great bones there, but employment, the tenant base, social issues, it kind of had it all. We went there, frankly, because of the price. When everything else was experiencing some negativity from the downturn, Waterbury was like it had the plague. You know, it was whenever someone else gets a cold, you know, Waterbury feels it the worst. And because of that, we were able to buy a number of assets at what we thought was incredibly low pricing, so low that you couldn't resist. And over a couple of years, we ended up buying about 31 properties between two and four units. So just a number of smaller assets in like a two mile radius of downtown Waterbury. 
Mm -hmm. And that was the impetus to us starting Connecticut Realty Trust. And it had a lot of positives in that we started what is our business today from that. I was certainly younger in the real estate game at that point and running low income, distressed, scattered site, multifamily might be the best way, in my opinion, to learn anything and everything there is to learn about real estate, good and mostly bad. But I think it was like getting a master's degree in challenges in real estate. And fortunately, we purchased it all. We renovated a ton and we ran that for a number of years. It was a few years after that, that we realized this might not be as good as we had hoped it could be. But it, as I mentioned, it kind of set a platform and it set the stage for us to pursue some different things. From there, we went to Bridgeport. We started buying buildings, got away from the smaller assets and pursued 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 unit buildings. And from about 2011 to 2016, we purchased, renovated, and mostly held, but sold a few something like 1,500 units or so in the Bridgeport, West Haven, eventually markets. Pursuing what I would say is what my dad had kind of cut his teeth in, which is the low to moderate income, distressed areas, distressed neighborhoods, things that we could come in and actually effectuate change physically to the assets. What I tried to do is bring a whole new level of management to the area, you know, something that just isn't expected in or wasn't historically in these types of markets. Really simple things like respect the tenants, offer clean, nice housing. My whole thing was to try and offer the best of the best in those particular markets. And it was with two simple things in mind. Make the tenants want to stay Stay in your unit, which is one of the things that we, one of the big challenges in Connecticut is the turnover of residents. If you can make them want to stay and literally make them want to pay, meaning make them feel like what they have here is better than anywhere else they can go, that I think has been the recipe to success with all the assets that we've purchased since then. Yeah, it's great you say that because we've actually modeled at my company, Clark Street, we've modeled the exact same approach. Frankly, the way that you run your business is one of the reasons I was so eager to talk with you because our mantra here is we buy, it's a little more colorful language that I use, but we buy bad buildings from landlords who aren't very good at their jobs. And perfect description. And we make them clean and safe. And then we make them beautiful uh, with the exact same philosophy of, you know, making sure that they enjoy and they're proud of where they live because they tend to stay because vacancy is extremely expensive in our business. And if you can make them stay, as you said, you can also make them pay a little bit for it as well. I'm not even referencing pay up. I am literally referencing Pay, (laughs) choose to pay your rent before you go out to dinner or whatever it is, you know, make them have pride, as you said, in where they live, make them be happy where they live. If you accomplish those goals, nine out of 10 times, you're going to have a great relationship and partnership with your residents. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. Bard, you talked about how you got into the business and how you picked Waterbury and then moved on to Bridgeport, West Haven. Are you still investing in Connecticut today? Very much still invested in Connecticut today. Are you worried about the future of being a property owner in Connecticut? Are you optimistic? 
very optimistic about the future of Connecticut, but the investing climate has certainly changed from 2009 or more specifically 2011 or so when we kind of transitioned into Bridgeport and more Southern Connecticut. And basically, I'd say the number one thing I can point to is the secrets out. Connecticut has a lot to offer. I think that just wasn't for whatever reason. Uh, Maybe it's because of how strong New York and specifically New York City has been forever, that it's just overshadowed a lot of these surrounding markets. More recently, I think COVID actually had a positive effect on places like Connecticut, even suburbs of New Jersey and things of that nature, where people and qualified residents that maybe needed to be in New York have a little more flexibility than they used to. Whatever the reasons are, there's certainly been a big push of investors out to Connecticut. It's compressed cap rates, meaning it's raised the prices of the assets. It's made it very difficult to find, I'd say, our core business asset, which is what you just described, bad buildings from bad owners. That is very few and far between today. But I'm still incredibly bullish on Connecticut. Not only does it have a lot to offer geographically, I still think the future is brighter than the past. I think rents here compared to especially other markets in the Northeast still have a long way to grow because even though it's been quote unquote hotter of late, it's got a big backlog of time that it just hasn't seen the increase in rents, the increase in attention, the increase in investment. And I think that's going to take time. And in a good way, it should, as more investors come in and more places are purchased, money's put in, I think it makes the entire state and the entire investment stronger. That being said, that core asset, as I mentioned, it's gotten, it's become so expensive that this very second is not what I'm focused on. Was forced to kind of pivot my core business a little bit because of the pricing that I've been seeing. And I know how these assets run. I know what they make. I know what the problems are. And frankly, I've had trouble justifying a lot of the pricing, a lot of the transfers, a lot of the purchases, even some of the sales that I've done personally have been a little head scratching of either what do they know that I don't know? How sympathetic is their capital? Or hopefully this isn't the answer. Maybe they don't know something. Because if I do business on, I'm hoping that we both succeed. I hope we both walk away with it. I I wouldn't wish anyone to do poorly with something that they bought from me. But I still, it's been head scratching, to say the least. Forced us to get a little creative with how we pursue new deals. On the very far end of creativity, one thing that we have been and continue to pursue for a while is finding distressed condominium associations, ones where... The investors own the majority of the units. When that happens, the lending markets leave that asset, meaning people that own or occupy can't buy the units using debt most likely or conventional debt methods. And from a commercial standpoint, it's very hard to get conventional debt on a community if you don't own the whole thing. That we found to be a little bit of an arbitrage and truly a benefit not only for us, but for a lot of the residents that own their units that are frankly stuck in these things because liquidity has left that market, call that fractured condos. And we've pursued a number of these deals where we'll go in and buy 
units that are available and then start talking with the residents, start talking with the other owners and slowly but surely buy up all the units in that complex. Most of the time, these complexes are incredibly distressed. Either the owners don't have the money to do what's needed to bring them back or the investors don't care enough because they're renting, they bought it for very little money and they're renting it for whatever they get and they allow the asset to uh, go down over time. This is something that we had pursued over the last number of years as a way to kind of, like I said, find an arbitrage, find an edge in trying to find this conventional asset that we've been investing in, which is value add, low to moderate income properties. So then the play is, this is brilliant. So the, then the play is to refi as you get to a certain percentage, or do you have to own the entire asset to be able to then go to the market and refinance it? No set rules. Really depends on, I'd say, what your lending relationships are and all of that. I've been able to, on some of these projects, get some lending along the way. But the real, quote unquote, moneymaker is when you do own all the units and you basically flip it back to a conventional multifamily. We, in broad brush in these circumstances, are buying the individual units for about 50% of what they're going to be worth literally the day after you flip the switch and you open it up to conventional lending because lending drives values. If lending didn't exist, then cut out 75% of everything that we buy. And that's probably the right price for it. Yeah. Or I should say leverage buys. Yeah. Uh, yeah Cause then we'd have to all go get jobs for a living and we're, well, let's, let's not think about that. That's not terrible. <laughs> But yes, that is something that we have pursued and we still have a couple of those going right now that even in this incredibly hot market where I have not been able to buy a conventional property since 2016, we've continued to grow, continued to put together assets and business plans that are very profitable. Oh, that's brilliant. So I'm curious in terms of capital, are you raising capital with private investors? Or are you doing this out of your own capital position at this point? Your holdings are substantial. So sure, sure. Yeah. The answer there is private investors always, no matter how deep your pockets are, it's just another form of leverage. Right. Also, we've built this business and purchased a lot of these assets with a lot of the same investors. They've been very loyal to us over time, been fortunate to give strong results to them. And as a result, almost every new deal that we do will have a portion of private high net worth investors, a portion for ourselves. And depending on the size of the asset or the acquisition, it might also include some kind of private equity or private fund or something of that nature. It's almost always a combination of those three in one form or another depending on, once again, the size. Also, in the case of something like the fractured condo, how unique the investment might be. Sure. Because something like that isn't so easy for everyone to get their arms around. But when and if you do, you see pretty clearly there's incredible opportunity there. But more importantly, you can find opportunities in any market if you think hard enough, dig deep enough, look at enough deals, even looking at the bad ones, I think just gives you more knowledge for the market and teaches you something. 
If nothing else, it teaches you what not to do. (laughs) So when you're looking at these deals, I mean, how many deals are you vetting and and underwriting before you get comfortable, A, with a market, and then B, with a particular asset to then invest in? Hundreds. And when I say hundreds, I mean, over the course of a year, hundreds and hundreds. And that, I would say, has become more as the market has become more competitive than before. It's always difficult. It's been difficult from day one. When you try and put any deal together, whether it's a dollar or $10, it's a tough endeavor. But that has certainly become more difficult as more players have come into the market and prices have risen. And you just have to be creative and you have to be willing to look at 100 deals and not get discouraged that every single one of those is a non-starter. Right. Uh, you know, hopefully it's the 101st or something like that that piques your interest. And for whatever reason, one great thing about real estate is there isn't a channel online where you go or on the TV where you can turn it on and see exactly what everything is worth to the second. Wouldn't that be uh, wonderful? Well, it would would make it less that I think it leaves less opportunity. If everyone has access to the same exact info like stocks, there's less chance for opportunity. So this, I think, opens the doors to finding something that's overlooked. Bard, you're absolutely right. I think real estate lends itself favorably to being able to exploit inefficiencies in the market. So that is absolutely spot on. Rewards hard work. Exactly. Exactly. So where you are today, we have people who are listening to our podcast throughout all different spectrums. What words of inspiration would you have for people? Because if you're looking at hundreds of deals that don't work, how do you still get up in the morning and say, I am going to find that one-on-one? couple things. If you're just getting into it, you can't get so hurt if you don't go too big, whatever too big is for you. You can't get too hurt if you don't go too big and you maybe overpay to just get into a market, start to understand it. Maybe the returns won't be exactly what you're hoping for or need, but I think just the pure act of starting somewhere with something that you can afford, and I'm not saying afford to lose, you should never buy something with the idea that you're going to lose it, but I think there's a lot to say about not waiting for that perfect moment, because if you do that, you will probably never enter the market. Wait, 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 stop. One minute. You mean I can't time the market? Breaking news. Yeah, you heard it here. <laughs> we need that breaking news sound, Ed, so that we can say, Barge says. Yeah, this is serious stuff. Obviously, you cannot. And therefore, if you're trying to get into this as a quote-unquote newbie, you find the best that you can find at a level that won't hurt you dramatically, and you dive in. If it's a market that you believe in, then I think there's a a lot worse things you can do than that. If you're already established or you're somewhere in between, it can be discouraging, but I'll just go back to, if you look hard enough, it is not a perfect market. Nothing's perfect, but this is incredibly imperfect for the reasons we just discussed. You look hard enough, you'll find stuff. The fractured condo thing was something that we did, we certainly weren't thinking about initially. And it really came about through sitting around with uh, my dad some nights and just talking about where the heck we're going to go and going through past deals. And you come up with this stuff. And if it's not that, it probably would have been something else. Just like any business, 
If you put enough time and effort in, you'll find ways to profit off of them. Buying investment real estate is both thrilling and sometimes stressful. Without a lending expert by your side, most investors don't stand a chance. That's where CT Rea Funding comes in. CT Rea Funding was founded by investors to help investors just like you fund their deals. Whether you're buying a single family rehab, an apartment building, or really any investment property, our team will understand your deal and help you close quickly. Go to ctreiafunding.com or call us at 860-876-0572. One of the things that you hit upon, is it really resonates with me, and that is finding your mentor. You were blessed with having a father who was also a mentor. But the thing is that it's so important to find someone or have someone in your life who is going to tell you the truth, who's going to help you think through things, who's going to help you look at the market differently than you would by yourself. This is a team sport. Sure. And to kind of add to that, if you have that mentor and hopefully eventually you have a lot of people to use as sounding boards, you'll realize quickly that you're not alone. Almost everyone has probably gone through every issue that you might be going through at that time. You don't always have to reinvent the wheel. There's resources out there and there's people that the problems that happen tend to happen over and over and over again. History repeats itself. Almost any issue is solvable other than maybe bankruptcy. That's a bad one. Yeah, you don't want to do that. That's you don't want to do that. But up to that point, almost any issue is solvable. Yeah. And as you said, success leaves clues. The fact that you operate a specific way and someone who hadn't even met you yet, me, got wind of how you operate and, and I modeled my business similarly, right? Not sure. the same, but similarly. Sure. And someone that meets me or hears about me will model some of the things that I'm doing and some of the things Rich is doing and build their own business. And like I said, success leaves clues. Sure. Bard, what's the future? Where are you going? Where's your company going? And what do you guys see yourselves doing in five, 10 years? That's an easy question because we've taken a very different path of late. In February of 2020, or I guess December of 19, a deal came across our desk that was different than anything we had pursued in the past. It was a brand new build, class A, 130 unit property that was actually in December of 19. It wasn't even finished. It was finished in May of 2020. Came across our desk that for a number of reasons was appealing. It had to do with some access to capital that we had at the time and the appetite for that type of capital. It had to do with the asset itself. It had to do with random timing of where the world was that we were players for an asset like this. And we ended up going into contract for that in February of 2020. And then this thing happened in March of 2020 called COVID, which was a little, it was a little scary. The way that we won the contract, which I don't recommend, is typically you sign a contract and you get a period of due diligence where the deposit that you put down is soft. It's refundable up until your due diligence is done. The way that we ended up winning this contract is we said, We'll go into contract right now and X amount of our deposit is hard, meaning non-refundable. That's contract signing. It's not something I would suggest in normal times. And it's definitely not something I would suggest when you sign the contract for the biggest deal of your career. And then the world comes to uh, a halt. <laughs> On the Christmas apocalypse, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. 
let me just suggest, Bart, you've got abs of steel. Well, maybe stronger now than then. I'll say that. But we go into contract for this thing. The world goes dark. We had to raise the largest amount of equity we had ever raised for one single deal. And we had to do it in three months. We were confident before COVID, but when COVID happened, just like everyone in the world, whatever industry you're in, we had no clue how receptive our core group would be, how receptive people that we haven't met yet would be. Maybe more importantly, the banks, just a lot of question marks. And through a lot of pain and phone calls and this and that, we ended up getting the deal done. There was a few benefits and hindsight that came from that. The sellers wanted to sell maybe more than we wanted to buy at that point. We had that going for us and we agreed upon a price reduction during contract, which is something, by the way, I never do. We pride ourselves on when we cut a deal, that's the deal. We're not ones that try and get something into contract and then start negotiating. It's not in me. This was obviously very extreme circumstances. And even with the price reduction, we had no clue if we were buying something that would even be viable after we closed because we didn't know where the world was going. And something that added a little layer of fun to this was we were buying the asset 50% occupied because it was just being built. And we obviously had absolutely no clue how receptive the rental world was going to be in this COVID world. So it really checked a lot of boxes and created a few stresses to say the least over that period. But we did close it. We closed it on May 29 of 2020 and went through a nine to 12 month period of not repositioning because it was a brand new asset, but the developers and the builders did a great job of building the asset. They didn't have a lot of experience with marketing and management and all of that stuff. So we did bring changes there. We went out to the world in a number of marketing ways, uh, even some ways that I learned about during this process. And 12 months later, we were 100% leased. We today have a 50-person wait list to get in. And in complete hindsight, that price reduction, which at the time I truly didn't know if it was even remotely right, did turn out to be a benefit but I wouldn't necessarily say I would want to go through what we did to realize that benefit again. That was uh, harrowing. <laughs> yeah, not the best, but this is a long way of saying, what are you doing now? One part of this deal, which we weren't even thinking about at the time of purchase was the original developers had a master plan. Uh, what they built, which is the grand luxury apartments is 130 unit class A thing over 10 acres in Granby, Connecticut. That was phase one. Phase two, which was contiguous to this, was a 35-acre parcel that they had approved for 50 single-family homes. They were doing this as a rental, and they were doing the 50 single-family homes for sale. In our contract to buy the rental, we got a right of first refusal to purchase the land next door. And basically, if anyone came to them during our ownership and wanted to buy it, we had a right to match that. We had never developed anything ground up before. So truly when that happened, it wasn't, it was somewhere in my thoughts is something that I would like to pursue at some point, but it certainly was in front of my mind. And about six months into the project, very unexpectedly, the sellers of the property came to us and said, we got an offer. 
And we had 10 days to decide whether we wanted to match that offer or not. I was really hoping even if we did pursue this, it was years, not six months. But uh, in that six months, if we didn't already know a ton about that market, we certainly learned everything there was to know about the market. And most importantly, we learned about the demand in the area. We ended up cutting a deal, slightly lower actually than what they were offered because they were offered to uh, sell it to a home builder. And home builders typically take things down in phases. And their takedown was over three years that they were going to buy a third, a third, a third. They build the homes, they sell them, they then buy the next. We are not for sale home builders. At the time, we weren't builders of anything. Tons of rehab, but no ground up development. As I mentioned, we ended up cutting a deal that was actually about 20% lower than what the original offer was because we agreed to buy it outright versus a multi-year takedown. Right. Right. And we immediately after we bought it, went to work to try and upzone it from the what was currently 50 units. And we got it up zoned to be 75 units, which uh, was originally 50 single family homes, is now 28 duplexes, so side-by-side two-family duplexes, 19 single-family homes, a pool, a clubhouse, a bocce ball court, some fire pits, all that stuff. And the big kicker is we are not doing it for sale. We're doing it for rent, pursuing a area that has become very prevalent across the country, but has not really been brought to Connecticut or, or much of the Northeast in any meaningful way. And that's the build for rent, single family rental, whatever you want to call it. It's that space. Building started, uh, we went in the ground on that in September of 21. We're in May of 22. And we now have of the 50 foundations, we have about 30 foundations in. We've got about 20 of them that almost look like actual houses at this point. We're looking to deliver our first pod of about 12 units in July. So it's a a very exciting time for us and certainly a big pivot from what has been our conventional business. That's fascinating. Congratulations on both those deals. Thank you. That's really impressive. So I'm curious, you know, in terms of the actual construction piece, how are you mitigating the supply and demand issues and, you know, supply chain issues around materials? And yeah, I mean, the board foot cost of lumber these days has doubled and in some cases tripled. Sure. How are you managing that? I'll tell you how we're managing it. But before I say that, I'll say it certainly isn't because I'm doing everything. I've got very good partners both internally here, hired a great GC, Nelson Construction, who we're working in tandem with, and partnered up with what's become a friend and colleague and whatever else named Reggie Kronstadt. He runs uh, Crown Point Capital, and he did come with a lot of ground-up building experience. So the combination of all of that is how, A, we were able to get this project off the ground, and B, knock on wood, being nine, 10 months into the project, we are actually, in spite of everything you just said, still in line to come in under budget of our original budget. Wow. wow. How do we do that? We were able to do a number of buyouts early on in the project to ensure, even at that time, maybe a little higher pricing than we had hoped, but at least it stabilized certain areas of the cost. One of the big areas of the cost was the site work. 
and that was basically unaffected by the changes. We've been monitoring it. We meet on a weekly basis. We monitor all of our, all the areas of the build from the labor to the different components, the kitchen cabinets, the windows, the this, the that. And it's really about having all the information. Once again, early buyouts, but you can't buy out everything initially and picking and choosing your moments to either do larger buys or smaller buys. As lumber was really accelerating about four months ago, we found ourselves buying on a house-by-house basis. As things kind of came down and normalized closer to our budget number, at those times, we did bulk buyouts. We bought a number of things paid up front to get some discounts on those. And unfortunately, one way that you also keep costs down is you do make some tough choices of, do you need the under cabinet lighting? Do you need that extra fire pit? And initially, I think we did scale back nothing meaningful, but we found ways to bring the cost down a little bit, especially with the uncertainty of how much these escalations would affect the project. Fast forward to today, where we're much further along in the project and feel more comfortable with our budget, we're actually now looking at expanding some things. We're looking at expanding possibly the size of the clubhouse. We added a whole nother section of amenity because we feel just really good about where we are with our budget and thankfully been able to stave off a lot of the escalations that a lot of people are feeling. Wow. Outstanding. Congratulations. Not done yet. Yeah, that's okay. But you're on your way. We, we, we congratulate at the end. Right. <laughs> but unfortunately, by the time this is done, we're hopeful to have a couple more projects going. So there's almost never going to be a congratulations. It's it, right. it just okay. never ends. So we don't want to take up all of your time because, I mean, we could talk real estate all day. As could I. <laughs> what are some of the places you look for inspiration? Are you a reader, a podcast person, a radio person? Where do you get your inspiration? For deals or for life? Both. Yes. Both. I am a podcast person. My go-to podcast is called Planet Money. Love it because it stays away from any particular industry and really just talks about so many different industries, so many different jobs, different countries, things that are macro or micro, just really interesting topics that may not be directly related to any specific real estate deal that I'm doing, but I think it's good to just get a a wide array of understanding of certainly different areas of business, but also life. I don't think it helps to just be so narrow-minded on whatever field it is that you're in, because for the most part, in my opinion, a lot of the issues we experience here are felt, whether you trade stocks or sell widgets or whatever it is that you do, you know, there's a lot of those similar issues. Everyone needs debt. Everyone needs capital. I think it's important to just get a very eclectic view of the world and view of business and and kind of learn about as much as you can. That's a fun podcast I listen to. What books do I read? I'm reading a book right now and the name is going to escape me about uh, a guy who did business in Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. All about dealing with Russia and the deals he put together and the issues he came across. Very fascinating book that I wish I could think of the title of it right now. Read something. And inspiration, kind of boring, but I think that is industry specific. And I read anything and everything that comes across my desk. 
whether it's news articles, whether it's listings that I have no interest in. You do a quick back of the napkin, or sometimes if it has any appeal to it, maybe you take it a step further, but you just read and read and research and read and gain as much knowledge as you can. Yeah. Bard, this has been tremendous. I'm just curious, and I know you're as busy as we all are. When you're not talking, thinking, reading about real estate, what do you like to do? Uh, huge Yankees fan. My man. That's what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, big Giants fan. Well, that's your pen the Yankee fan. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> My brother is actually a race car driver, works for NBC. So he races in NASCAR part-time and does some shows on NBC. So very into that. I am a uh, struggling golfer. What else? That's like a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. That's a lot. If people want to get in touch with you, how would you recommend they do that? Shoot me an email. It's okay. uh, Bard. B as in boy, A-R-D as in dog at ctrealtytrust.com. Love talking to anyone, whether it's about specific deals or like we're doing here, talk real estate. I enjoy it all. Yeah. Well, thank you. And we're certainly grateful for your time today and all your insights. It's kind of rare that we get to meet somebody who's doing as many things as you're doing. And we're really excited about putting this one out to the world because I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you, Bard. I appreciate that. Really nice meeting you both and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, likewise. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. This has been the Real Estate Underground Podcast, a CTRIA presentation. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. If there's a specific topic you want us to cover, post it in the comments. For more information on the Real Estate Underground Podcast or CTRIA, go to realestateundergroundpodcast.com or ctria.com. Until next time, happy investing.